You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. I absolutely uh, love that video. Uh, how many of you guys have seen that before? Okay, not too many. Uh, there is a movie that's based on this story called Lion. How many of you guys have seen that? Okay, a few people. I haven't seen it yet. But I love that story, and I wanted to show it today with our, uh, we're, we're, if you're visiting with us, we've been doing a series on Daniel, the book of Daniel, and the title of the lesson today is Seeing the Big Picture. But with the idea of seeing the big picture, that's really why we have the Bible. And I love that line where he says, I woke up every morning next to that map. And that's really what the Bible is meant to be in our lives, is it shows us our place in God's story. And so we can see the big picture and see what God has done through all time and through the ages and through his people and through Jesus. And then we kind of find our own spot in that map. And it's kind of like zooming in and zooming out and everything he was doing on Google Maps to try to find his way home. Because the fact is, we really do all end up lost. And we all end up needing to find our way home. And that's what the Bible is there for. And that's what this fellowship and this community is there for, is to help us all on our journey to find our way home. Um, We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, 8, and 9. If you want to go ahead and be turning over there, I'm going to say a word of prayer uh, as we open the scriptures, and uh, and then we'll continue on here uh, with the, the text. Let's pray. God, thank you to be able to open your word. Thank you for how available it is to us. Uh, thank you for uh, it being a map in terms of showing us our, our way to home and our way to a relationship with you. God, I do believe that you want each person in this room to be in a relationship with you, to know you, to be known by you. And I pray that you bless our time here today looking at your scriptures, that, that you would speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we get into the lesson here, just kind of a side note, uh, this app, if you don't have it, it's available on Google Play or on uh, the App Store. And uh, right, right now, or every Sunday now, you can follow along the notes. So um, if you click on notes, you'll probably see the announcements. We're putting those in there every week as well. Uh, so I know this is kind of new to all of us, so I just want to make sure you all get it. So you click on, open the South Bay Church app, click on notes, and then it'll show the announcements you do more notes and then that'll be today's lesson which is called seeing the big picture so you can open that and then if you take notes you just email it to yourself and then you'll have whatever notes that you've added to that does that make sense and the announcements are on there also um, as i mentioned we're going to be looking at uh daniel 7 8 and 9 and i'm going to be building on a lesson that john oaks did uh, a few weeks ago at our regional service uh, at the end of February, February 26th, I think it was. Uh, and uh, he, he really walked through these chapters we're going to be doing this week and next week, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He gave a lot of specifics, fulfilled prophecies, um, some really cool stuff. So if you haven't seen that, uh, that message, I just encourage you, you can also watch that on this app. If you click on video, you'll be able to just look for the regional service. It's called Daniel Rules the Nations. You can watch the video. Or uh, if you click on Listen... You can uh, download just the audio and listen to it in the car or whatever. Uh, but, but listen to that message if you haven't gotten a chance to. This, is, this week and next week are going to be building on what the detail that he already provided and kind of using that as a platform. And uh, this today is going to be a little more teacher-ish than some other uh, lessons that we have. Um, I, a brother one time uh, told me that listening to me was kind of like 
being in a lecture, and uh, I don't think he meant it in a positive way. Maybe he did. <laughs> it didn't put a positive thing in my mind, because uh, nobody really likes to sit in a lecture. Well, maybe some of you do. I know Kelly Miller does, wherever she is. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but anyway, so this is going to be practical as well. So stay with me. If some of it kind of gets a little over your head or a little boring or whatever, don't worry too much about it. The point is, read the Bible. It's a map for your life, okay? <laughs> That's the point. Uh, but, but in Daniel 7 and, and 8 and 9 and 10, 11, the, this last part of Daniel is a, uh, a type of, of literature that we need, to, we need to know, we need to examine. So I wanted to use it as an opportunity to learn and understand this kind of literature. So we're going to be talking a little bit about apocalyptic literature and what that is. We're also going to be talking about Daniel and his response to these visions he had as a person. And just to kind of, again, back up, this is the series that we're doing, The Eye of the Storm. And the whole reason, why are we choosing Daniel? Why are we looking at Daniel? Why did we pick him to do this series? It's because he literally was in the eye of the storm. You know, he's this man of faith who is completely separated from his family, from, from any kind of support system. He's all on his own in this secular society, and yet he maintains a faithful relationship with God. And I think he's somebody that we can look to as an example because he has just this great balance of he's, he's a man of faith, he's a man of conviction, he's a, he won't compromise, and yet he's also not weird. You know what I mean? He's a, he's a great balance because there's people that are like, yeah, I'm going to stand up for my faith, but they're also really weird or they're judgmental of everybody and nobody wants to be around them. Yeah. That wasn't Daniel. That wasn't Jesus, right? Yep. Daniel was, he, he was a man of character and a man of faith, but he also wasn't weird. He worked hard. He had a job. He was promoted. He did well. Uh, you know, people were trying to find something to, to criticize and they're like, we can't come up with anything to criticize about this guy unless it has something to do with his faith. That's the only thing we can find. That's just who Daniel was. He, he was carried off into exile, so hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from his homeland, away from his family, away from his you know, support system. He's in the, the empire of Babylon, but he does well. He's promoted. He's given responsibility. He does great, even in the secular society without compromising. Then the whole Babylonian Empire is overtaken by another completely different empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and he's still right there in the eye of the storm. You, know, you imagine all the Babylonians were, were taken out of positions of leadership or, or killed or whatever, but Daniel just kind of makes it right through the eye of the storm. Uh, and, and God continues to bless him and use him even in this whole new regime. And, and, and this is great for us because we're always going to have uh, cyclonic activity around us. There's going to be crazy stuff going on uh, in our world, in your job, in your school, in our community, in our government. That's the nature of this world, as we're going to see from some of these scriptures. But you and I need to be men and women of faith who are stable and secure and, and close to God. And, and we're just, we're fine. You know, we're doing fine. We're right there in the eye of the storm. We know where God's got us and God has a plan. Uh, I want to give you a timeline here so you know where Daniel is. And I've, I've done this several times. Whoops, I'm going to knock this over for sure. I'm going to move it. There we go. Uh, I know I've done this several times, but this just helps me to, to, to learn kind of where things are in history. So if you take a line and you draw a, a hatch mark in the center, so you divide it in half, and Abraham is, is over there on that end, and we are on this end. Anybody know what's right in the center, right halfway between us and Abraham? Jesus. 
Jesus is halfway in time between us and Abraham. So if you divide that in half again, David is halfway between Abraham and Jesus. This is important because a lot of times people think, oh yeah, David, he was, wasn't he like Dave, Abraham's grandson or something? He, you know, you kind of kind of mix up when things happen. David's halfway between. Halfway between Abraham and David, you have Moses. So that's the, uh, the time of the Exodus. So to, to give you the story, so Abraham, he had his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and his son Joseph, remember, he ends up being in charge of Egypt. And so the family moves down to Egypt. But then they're there for hundreds of years. They become enslaved. The population of Israelites becomes enslaved in Egypt. And so they're doing hard labor and all these projects for Egypt. God delivers them out of Egypt by using Moses. So that's halfway between Abraham and David. So it's hundreds of years later that they come out of Egypt in the Exodus. Then halfway between David and Jesus is what's known as the exile. So that's kind of the exodus in reverse. Let me give you one more there. Exile. Daniel is at the time of the exile. He's right here. Uh, so 550 B.C. or so. So that's the time that we're in. And that's the place in God's story that we are. God delivered his people out of Egypt. He told them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. He told Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. God had a plan to bring the Messiah to all nations. His, fee- his people were unfaithful to him, and so that's why the promises he had told them would happen came true, and they were carried off into exile. But even in that, God still had a plan, as we're going to see. So even in the time of the exile, God had a plan that really is leading up to where we are today. So that's the, the kind of time frame that we're in. Okay, so I mentioned this is a type of language called apocalyptic. You might have not heard that term before, or maybe you have heard, everybody's probably heard of the term apocalypse. But apocalyptic is a genre, it's a literary genre of writing, and uh, it's a form, this is a, a, you know, academic definition of apocalyptic. It's a form of eschatology with, now let me tell you what that word means. (laughs) Eschatology has to do with end times, with judgment, with death, with the future. Uh, it, 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 it's uh, this theology that concerns death, judgment, final destiny of the soul and of humankind. So eschatology just means end times, okay? So apocalyptic is a form of eschatology, that, that theology, with one, hope for a better world, two, dualism. That means there's more than just here. There's here and there's also a heavenly realm. Exotic symbolism. So apocalyptic literature has lots of symbols, lots of numbers, uh, images, that are not meant to be sort of figured everything out. It's more of, uh, meant to kind of create a feeling. You know, dragons and, and bowls of fire and, and uh, you know, just crazy stuff. A lot of crazy stuff in apocalyptic literature. Number four, stark contrast between present evil age and the glorious future. So usually apocalyptic writing comes in during a time of crisis or a time of hardship where everything looks dark around us. Number five, there's an eminent end of this world. And number six, there's a deterministic view of history. In other words, God has a plan. That's what apocalyptic literature is. And so we're going to talk in a little bit about some of the rules of how to read apocalyptic literature. But, but I want to just kind of give you an example of what this looks like as we look here in Daniel 7. Um, as you're turning there, if you haven't turned there already, I, I, it's, we're going to do too much reading to put on the screen. So you can look on a, on a computer, I mean on your phone or look in your Bible in Daniel 7. But, um, you know, this, this apocalyptic imagery is something that it's not only in the Bible. 
Um, it's found in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, parts of Isaiah, parts of Jeremiah, parts of Daniel, the second half of Daniel for sure. Um, but then the period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a lot of apocalyptic writing. It, it, it was kind of a genre of writing. You know how we have different genres of writing, like maybe crime fiction. You know, that's a genre. Uh, we understand there's certain norms that those things have, or maybe a you know, a sci-fi movie. There's certain things you expect with a sci-fi movie, right? Uh, apocalyptic was a, a genre. There's certain things you expect and you kind of understand. So by the time Jesus and his apostles come on the scene, they, they are in this world where the, uh, apocalyptic literature was really popular. And so they're sometimes referencing things in apocalyptic literature that we don't really get because we don't know that genre. Uh, but, but that in First and Second Peter, as we're going to look at next week, and Jude, you know, there's a lot of reference to some of the apocalyptic literature. I want to re just read you a, a little quote. This is from the book of Enoch. Uh, and I read some of this for a class in school last fall. It says, Enoch has got 105 chapters. And, and Enoch is an interesting book. It's huge. A lot of it deals with the fallen angels and this idea of the, you know, the Nephilim and the sons of, of God and the daughters of men and some of that stuff you read about in Genesis. So Enoch goes really into detail with a lot of that and uh, all this crazy imagery and stuff like that. And, but here's, here's a quote. See if this sounds familiar. It says, Behold, he comes with ten thousands of his angels to execute judgment upon them and to destroy the wicked and re reprove all the carnal for everything which the sinful and ungodly have done and committed against him. That's First Enoch 2, verse 1. Doesn't that sound like Jesus said about the Son of Man coming with thousands of his angels? You remember that? So it, it's almost like Jesus is referencing Enoch or some of the, this other literature that, that has this apocalyptic imagery. So that's why it's important to kind of get how it works and what it is. So Daniel 7, verse 2. And we're going to talk about a couple of these evil men that Daniel talked about and John Oakes uh, talked about a few weeks ago. Verse 2, it says, Daniel said, In my vision at night and looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground, stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given it. There before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Go up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. You know, again, I told you, this is crazy stuff, right? It's, it's vivid imagery. It's meant to, for you to just be kind of like, whoa, what would that be like? And, and, and you can't quite figure out what all of the images mean or what all the details mean. There are things that we can, can trace in history, but it's meant to show you that there is a heavenly reality that's going on beyond what, what we see in the physical world. And so John Oakes talked about how these beasts are, are four kingdoms. And, we, and Steve talked about this a few weeks ago as well with the statue. Remember, there was the different levels of the statue. So during the time of Daniel, you had the Babylonian Empire. After that, you had the, 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 the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. So these four beasts are represented, uh, those four empires are represented by these four beasts. Remember, Daniel's not anywhere near the Greek Empire. He's, he's right in between the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire. So he's seeing 
John Oakes said the, the book of Daniel is a history book of the future. So he's seeing future things that would happen. And one of the things he sees is that this fourth beast is, is unlike anything else. And that's what happened. The Roman Empire was like any other empire before it. It was terrifying and it crushed people. And, and it describes it as having 10 horns. There was one horn that became 10 and then one of the 10. And, and, and John Oakes, if you remember, he, he showed you this, uh, th this diagram. These are these 10 horns. These are these 10 Caesars. And you don't have to know this, but this, it talks about 10 and then this one, Domitian. So he is what we're going to see here as this boastful horn. So see the little, the little boastful horn there? <laughs> That's Domitian. That's what he actually looked like. So Domitian, this is in the time, Domitian was in the 80s. So he's not the recent 80s, but the old 80s, <laughs> the original 80s. And uh, so, he, so he was much, I mean, he's 500 uh, year plus 600 years later than Daniel. So he's much, much later, but, but he's, he's prophesied about in this text, and it's really amazing. We don't have time to, to read all this, but look in verse 21, verse Daniel 7. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So this guy Domitian, he battled against the Christians. That's exactly what happened. Domitian becomes the first systematic persecutor of the Christians. Down in verse 26, it says, The court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. That's Domitian's. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All rulers will worship and obey him. So hundreds of years before Jesus was this idea that even though there's these earthly kings, God is going to bring them down and establish an eternal kingdom that will be possessed by the saints, his holy people. He says that the holy saints will rule the nations, it says here. So that's why at the time of Jesus, they're looking for a military leader or they're looking for a guy who's going to overthrow the Roman government and that's going to establish this kingdom. They're like, where is this kingdom? That's why, you know, remember the story when, when James and John's mother comes to Jesus and she's like, okay, when you get into your kingdom, can my boys sit on your right and your left? Yes. It's total mom, you know? <laughs> Maybe they put her up to it, I don't know. But, but you know, they're, they're anticipating this earthly, physical kingdom. So that's why when he was killed, they're like, oh, we had hoped he was the Savior of Israel, but I guess we lost. I guess it, it wasn't what we expected because they didn't get the big picture. But you can see why they had their own earthly view that it was going to be this physical kingdom. And so uh, I want to show you one other thing in Daniel 8. So that's Domitian. Uh, this idea of the uh, uh, abomination that causes desolation. Anybody ever heard that term before? It's, it's kind of, uh, it's real popular with, uh, you know, heavy metal bands and stuff like that. You know, kind of like the Mark of the Beast, you know, or the abomination that causes desolation. I'm sure there's a heavy metal song that has that title or or a band or whatever. But it has a reality, and Jesus himself referenced it. So I think it's important for us to understand what it was. So turn over to Daniel 8. So Daniel 8 talks about uh, some struggles that are going on in the, in the Greek empire. So this is, so Domitian is, you know, in the 80s. This guy, this is Antiochus Epiphanes. He's in 165 BC. So he's way before, he's part of the Greek empire. So again, there's another horn. Usually whenever there's a beast, that's like a government or a kingdom. And the horns are, are positions of power 
or, or, or certain offices of power. Uh, okay, Daniel 8, verse 8. The goat, that's Greece, became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. That's Alexander the Great. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. So, so Alexander the Great died in his 30s suddenly, and then his empire was split four ways. That's what actually does happen. Verse 9, out of one of them came another horn, which st started small, but grew in power to the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It reached the host of heavens. It threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground." This is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, and that is indeed what happened. The, 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 with, with the Medo-Persian Empire, they allowed the Jews to still have their own religion, but then the Greeks come in and they had what's called forced Hellenization. You must become Greek. We're taking away your culture. And so they took away the daily sacrifice, and they, took away, they tried to take away Judaism from the Jews. And, and, and they persecuted people. In Hebrews 11, it talks about people being sawed and twoed and being abandoned and being homeless and... And, and, and giving up their lives in hope of a good resurrection. It's talking about this guy in this period that happened between the, the, the two t testaments. Uh, you know, when we celebrate Hanukkah, uh, those of us who are Jewish or those of us who are, uh, you know, know a little bit about Hanukkah, that's the, the, the celebration of the battle that overcame this guy, the Maccabean revolt. So th this guy was a bad dude. In verse uh, 13, and I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation? That's it, the abomination causing desolation. The surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How long is it going to take uh, for this to happen? And uh, he explains it, the angel interprets it. I don't have time to read all of the interpretation. You can definitely read it on, on your own. But uh, down in verse 25, he's explaining the interpretation of this horn, Antiochus. Verse 25, he will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So this, again, is Anti Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means manifest God. So he claimed to be a, a human God. God is a human and uh, want, demanded to be worshipped. And specifically what he did is he set up, he removed the daily sacrifice and he established a, a, a Zeus. He made the, the temple of God a, a temple of Zeus. And he built a, a statue to Zeus in that temple. And he sacrificed pigs there, you know, uh, in around 168 B.C. So this, this was horrible. This, and, and when they talk about the abomination that causes desolation, that's what they're talking about, is this, the, the, this desecration of the temple by this guy. Now, it's interesting because the other guy we talked about, Domitian, he is kind of referred to in the same way. If you skip over to Daniel 9, skip over to Daniel 9, in verse 25, it says, No one understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets in the trench, but in time of trouble. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. So that seems like it's talking about Jesus. The people of the ruler will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, 
at the temple he will set up, here it is, an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So this abomination that causes desolation, we just read it in these two verses. It's also in Daniel 11.31 and Daniel 12.11. So it's in, in Daniel a lot. And uh, this portion, Daniel 9, is talking again about Domitian. So this is talking again about in the 80s and, and what he would do and how he would overcome uh, God's people. And, and, uh, and, and so it's interesting to me because Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24. You can look on the screen. This is also in Mark. It's also in Luke in kind of a, a different way. It says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Matthew 24. So this is in, Matthew 24 is known as the mini-apocalypse of Matthew, because it's kind of apocalyptic, that chapter. And Jesus is telling his people, when you see what Daniel was talking about coming true, here's what I want you to do. And that is, in fact, what happened when the armies surrounded Jerusalem, Jerusalem was overthrown in 70 A.D. When, it, when the armies were surrounding, the, the, his, the Christians left. The Jews stayed and tried to fight, but the Christians were like, oh yeah, Jesus said for us to get out of the city. So they got out of the city, and they were spared a lot of the, the desecration that happened there when the temple was destroyed. But Jesus is saying, when you see this happening, here's what, you want to, what I want you to do. And, and so that, the reason that's important to us is that that, that we might not understand all the, the details and, and that last passage of Daniel 9 I just read, John Oakes goes into a lot of real detail about it in his book. And, and he gives you how the dates and the time and here's when you know, the temple was rebuilt and here's when Jesus came and it lines up exactly the amount of time and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do that today. But the cool thing is that God already knew what was going to happen. And so we're part of this big picture story of what he's already plant. And so even when things look dark, even when it looks like God is not in control, what this kind of language, this kind of literature teaches us is that he's still in control. Even when it looks like the emperors are just trouncing the Christians, the Christians had hope as they read the book of Revelation that is really on top of Daniel and Isaiah and some of this other imagery. They had hope that, no, God is still in control. We are part of his story. We are part of his big picture. We are part of his narrative. He is bringing to all nations salvation. Even though it looks really bad right now, God is doing something that will be for all people and for all time. And that is what happened. The Christians had such a witness that they eventually overthrew the Roman Empire, but not by strength, not by, you know, an armed revolt. They overthrew the Roman, Roman Empire by being like Jesus. You know, the Romans like, we don't understand these people. They're taking care of our poor. You know, we throw out babies and they rescue those babies and bring them up in the church. You know, they, they're poor already and yet they're taking care of our poor. They, they were embarrassed by the Romans. Look at how they go to their death. They're singing songs to one another as they're being killed in the arena. As the lions are coming to eat the Christians, they get on their knees and they pray for Caesar. Whoa. That's the witness of the Christians. And so, so, so through their faith that God is still in control, even when it looks bleak, that's what turned the whole world upside down. That's why we're here today. And, and I, I, I like this kind of stuff, especially when I'm going through difficult times. And, and for me, uh, I became a Christian right at the end of my junior year. 
And I ha- there wasn't many teens in the church at that time. This was back in Denver. And so I kind of felt alone a lot. Um, you know, I had a group of friends that I was hanging out with a lot at school. And uh, it, it was good because they were pretty moral. They didn't, you know, they didn't, they'd do a lot of the stuff that, that would get me into trouble. But then when, after I became a disciple, they started. They started having parties with drinking and people sleeping with each other and all this kind of stuff. And so I couldn't hang out with them anymore because they were... It, it, it wasn't good for me. I, I'm like, I can't go to this party where people are drinking. And so there was many Friday nights, many Saturday nights, I was all alone. And it was a really hard time for me, but, but I took so much comfort in this kind of stuff, this apocalyptic literature. I loved it when I was that old. I loved Revelation. I loved, you know, thinking about end times and all that kind of stuff. And I even wrote a song when I was a senior in high school called Shepherd's Sign. And it's a song about Jesus coming back and the end of the world. And, you know, the, the sun is black, the sky is red, the stars are falling, the moon, moon is dead. It's just, I love that stuff. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll post it for you guys. But I loved it. I, lo- I loved, you know, sort of the dark apocalyptic imagery because it gave so much encouragement to my soul because I felt like I was in the middle of this secular society. When you're in high school, you feel like all of high school is the whole world. You know what I mean? The, the popular people in high school might as well be like the people ruling the world because it's just that that's how it feels. You're just in the society trying to make it through like Daniel. And so it really, really encouraged me this kind of this kind of stuff. And so I hope it encourages you too. we're going to look at Daniel's uh, response to this. Uh, oh, I want to show you one more thing. One more thing before we move to Daniel's response. Um, and that is uh, another thing in Daniel seven. Have you ever noticed the response of the high priest when, de- when Jesus says this in Matthew 26. The high priest stood up, said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. This is this figure that's prophesied about in the Old Testament. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming with the clouds of heaven. His response, the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Man, they really, he gets, Jesus gets these Jews really riled up by what he said. And for a long time, I would read that, and I go, I don't really get that. I don't understand when they say he's spoken blasphemy. What are they, why are they so mad? You know, tearing your clothes, that was this sign of complete indignation. You know, if I just rip my shirt and just, ah, you know, <laughs> like Hulk, you know. That's, that's, that's what they, that's what he did, does. He's so angry. Why was he so angry? Well, Jesus is quoting this verse from Daniel 7. And I wish I had time to read the whole thing. I encourage you to read it on your own. It talks about, you know, this ancient of days and, and, and this river of fire and thousands upon thousands. So cool. Uh, it talks about the boastful horn, you know, being destroyed. And then in verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. 
All nations and people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when, when Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that's, that's Psalm 110, which is a, a messianic psalm. And then he says, and you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He's claiming this passage right here. You know, the high, high priests, they knew their Bibles back and forth. They had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers memorized. And they knew a lot of Daniel probably by heart. So they knew exactly what he was saying. He's claiming that I am this figure. All nations will bow to me. All authority will be given to me. My kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's why he gets so mad. This guy is blasphemous. Who does he think he is? This is this poor tradesman from Hicktown, from Nazareth. There was a saying, nothing good comes from Nazareth. You know, imagine if you came from that town. That's where Jesus came from. And, and, yet, and yet he's claiming to be this heavenly figure. That's why he gets so riled up. So understanding this literature helps you understand the Bible better. And it makes these passages maybe we're familiar with, like this, Matthew 26, it makes it come alive more. So a few uh, practicals on reading apocalyptic literature. These are on your app, so I'm not going to take a lot of time with them. But, and then we're going to talk about David, uh, Daniel's response. Daniel, uh, the uh, response to apocalyptic, or the best way to read apocalyptic is to, number one, read with humility. Uh, don't, don't try to go, okay, I have this figured out. Anybody that says, I know exactly what this means in, in Revelation, you know not to listen to them. Because nobody knows for sure. There's things you can line up with history and go, I think this is what it meant. But read with humility. Number two, what was the message to the original readers? What, what did it mean to those who it was originally written for? You know, there's people that will say, oh, Revelation is talking about this right here. This is, you know, Donald Trump or this is, this is Putin. You know, this is Putin. We've been waiting all this time for Putin, you know, to be here in the scripture. You know, I, I really don't think so. It's possible. You know, you don't want, you want to be humble, but... Would that have brought hope to the disciples in the first century, something that was 2016, you know, or 2017? I don't know. But, you know, you want to start with what was the message to them? Uh, take apocalyptic, oh, no strict chronological map, verse 3. It's kind of like, verse 3, number 3. Uh, it's kind of like uh, looking down at a game board. You know, if you're looking down at a game board, like Monopoly or something, you're, you can kind of see everything at once. You see everybody's journey at one time. Remember the book, remember that game, uh, the game of life? Yeah. Remember that? That was awesome. You, you got to hope to be a surgeon and then you're good, you know? <laughs> if you get a bad job, forget it. You might as well quit, you know? Uh, but the book, of, you know, the game of life, you look down on the game board, you kind of see it all. That's how apocalyptic literature is. So that's where, even in these chapters of Daniel, it's jumping around from something that happens in 165 B.C. with with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and then jumps over to something happening in 80 with Domitian. Why? Because those figures are very similar to one another. And so it's drawing comparisons, and they both set up the abomination that causes desolation. They both, you know, so, so, so there's parallels and stuff. So it kind of looks at all of history at once. So you can't uh, have this just strict chronology. Same with the book of Revelation. Number, number four, take apocalyptic seriously, not literally. Uh, so, so, you know, there's a different rule with most of the Bible. With most of the Bible, the narrative parts of the Bible, the first thing is you just take it, take it literally unless there's something that tells you it shouldn't be literal. You know, like when, when God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, 
you know, that's not, okay, there's literally 1,000 hills and those cows belong to God. You know, that's not what it's saying. It's, it's, uh, it's poetry. But a lot of the narrative, you just, you take it literal. Um, Jesus literally rose from the dead. Uh, the tomb is literally empty. But when it comes to apocalyptic, you kind of, it's the opposite. You, you figure it's figurative. It's symbolic. Unless something really tells you it's literal, it's usually figurative. And there's a lot of symbolism and numbers and, and, and images and stuff. Look for internal identification of images. In Daniel, the, the angels give him explanations a lot of times. In Revelation, there's also things where the, the angel explains what it meant. Uh, so if you, if you want to come up with something that is contrary to what the internal interpretation is, it's not going to be, you know, it's not valid. It's got to match. Uh, look at Old Testament and historical context. What was happening? What, wh why, would, why was this given? And focus on the main ideas. That, those are some, some basics for, uh, for apocalyptic. Okay, Daniel's response to the big picture. Daniel's response. How, how did he take all these visions? Number one, he was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed. Look at this verse, Daniel 7, 28. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. You know, when you first start, you've heard a couple people already today talk about studying the Bible. When we talk about that in our church, we just mean opening the Bible and reading it and talking about our lives. Uh, but when you start looking at the Bible and you look at the big picture and you look at the map that God has for you, it can be overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. When you think about what the, the, the you know, because most people just, they go about their daily lives and they're just, they're busy and they're doing stuff and they don't really think about the big issues of death and judgment and, you know, the big picture stuff. They don't think about that. They just think about, okay, I got this stuff due for school or I got to do this for work and I got to, you know, just the day-to-day -day stuff. When you see the big picture, it can be overwhelming. You know, one of my kids uh, was, was reading some stuff in the Bible or coming to some realizations and, and they wanted to just get together with me and talk because they were like, how do you handle the weight of this stuff? They're like, how do you handle it? This is intense. And it, it was really good for me because it reminded me, oh, you know, you know what, you're right, it is intense. You know, the, the, the stuff of judgment and the stuff of the future, and th this is intense stuff. I, I need to not take it for granted. So it can be overwhelming, and it can be okay. It's okay to be overwhelmed. It's just you, you got to surrender to God, and, and what is His plan? Number two, He got up and went to work. Look in uh, Daniel 8, 27. This is another response to the vision. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Can you imagine having a Bible study that just made you exhausted for several days? I've definitely been to conferences that made me exhausted for several days. But then he says, then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. You know, Daniel gets up and goes to work. He's got to do his everyday job. He gets about the business of the king. He's got a job to do. And, and brothers and sisters, this is, this is who we are. We are part of God's big picture, but, but we reflect that big picture in our daily lives and the way that we w work, the way that we interact with, with non-Christians, uh, you know, the way that we live our lives. Um, this verse in, in 1 Thessalonians talks about it talks about end times and God coming back, but he talks about make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. That's who we are. That's how we respond. We, we go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do 
the best job I can do, even if I don't like this job, or even if my boss is evil, even if he's a little like Domitian or a little like Antiochus, you know, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to, I'm going to live the life. And, and I think that's, we saw a living example of that with Mark Steber, you know, just living the life that impacted his boss. And now his boss is a, is a disciple. Third thing, he prayed. In Daniel 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So he sees the big picture. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. You know, God, uh, Daniel, seeing God's big picture, responds by praying. And the interesting thing is his prayer. Look at, and I don't have, we don't have time to read all of it, but I really encourage you to read all of Daniel 9 at some point this week because you'll be amazed at, at the content of his prayer, how worshipful it is, how passionate it is. But notice something with me. Verse 4, The Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. And he goes on, and, and in the rest of this passage, he prays through this big picture and all the history of God's people and how they've responded. Verse 17, now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because of your city and your people. Bear your name. What do you notice about Daniel's prayer? There's a lot of we in there, isn't there? There's a lot of our, our in there. Daniel is by himself in, in this secular society all alone, but he's praying for the sake of all of his people. Amen. And Daniel's not going, God, I've been righteous. I've been doing what's right. This has been hard for me, so I, des I deserve to be blessed, Lord. That, that can be how we pray sometimes. Come on, God, work with me here. Daniel doesn't do that. He didn't say, oh man, all these other people rebelled so much against you, God. I've been trying to be faithful here. He says, we, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have rebelled against you, God. He completely owns his place in God's story and his part with God's people. This is big because as Americans, we are so individualistic in the way that we think. And, and we see things in terms of our personal salvation and our own walk with God, and that's good. But we are a part of a story that is of all God's people. And, uh, and, and I, I don't have time to go any more about that. I'll have to t talk about it more next week. But one thing I want to uh, mention about this is we need to be like Daniel in terms of owning uh, all of our sin, you know. Uh, and, and we're a part of a group. This is a body. This is a fellowship. And so we need to pray like that. I think it's interesting that when Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says, this then is how you should pray in, in Matthew 11. Uh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. You know, you ever notice that? Yeah. I don't know about you, that helps me when I pray through it because I can be so selfish in my prayer. And yet that, that Lord's Prayer is all about praying as a group, praying for the group. Even if you're by yourself, you're, you're part of a family. Right. You're part of a community. Yeah. And uh, 
one practical thing on this is uh, on the app, I've added a registration, uh, under registration, a prayer team. And I want to ask you, if you have a prayer request, to go on the registration and sign up and put in a prayer request. And if you'd like to pray for those prayer requests, sign up. And so all those prayer requests, I just want to start a new thing and see how it goes. But all those prayer requests I'll send out every, every week or so, and then we can all pray for those things. So by signing up, you're also joining the prayer team. Like if you have a prayer request, it's not like, okay, these, these people that have problems are over here. They're going to submit prayer requests, and then the, smart, the, the intelligent, wonderful people who are doing great spiritually will pray for them. You know, maybe you've seen that in church before. That's not it. We're all a mess. So if you have a prayer request, you feel like, I'm so weak. Well, submit your prayer request, but you're also on the prayer team. And so you'll get an email, and you'll get what the prayers are. So it, it says on there, be, you know, be care, careful with specific, sensitive information, because this is going to go to the group. But if you sign up for that, I'll send that out to you. That's uh, under registration on the app. Uh, I want to do that. So next week, we're going to be talking about angels a little bit more. Uh, he talks about angels in, uh, in, in Daniel 9 and Daniel 8 and Daniel 7. All, all throughout Daniel, there are angels. So I want to talk more about who are angels, what does the Bible teach about them. We've already been reading about them in a lot of these stories of Daniel. Of Daniel, you know, Dan, the, the angel rescued Rackshack and Benny from the, uh, from the fiery furnace. Uh, you know, the angel wrote on the wall. That, uh, Mark read about the angel shut the lion's mouth we heard about last week. And so we're going to be learning more about angels. We're also going to be talking more about future glory. So in, in practical here, if you're visiting with us, I want to challenge you to investigate where you are in God's story. Search the Bible. The Bible is a map to find your way home. And you might get a bit overwhelmed like Daniel did at first. But push through. God has a plan for you. Number two, get up and go to work. Who you are at work tomorrow is who you are as a Christian. For disciples in school, you know, who you are at high school tomorrow, that's who you are as a Christian. I encourage you to to be like a Daniel employee or a Daniel student. Number three, unite yourself in prayer with the people of God. Join the prayer team, or even if you don't, just pray for all of us. We need to have a collective prayer uh, culture here in our church. Take courage in the final outcome of your faith. You know, the Bible teaches that 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Next week, our, our topic is future glory. We'll see you then. Let's all stand. We're going to sing a final song. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.